Hey, it's PNN. I'm Brooke Hines. It's Sunday, January 31, 2021. It's the last day of the month. Yeehaw. How's it going? I'm hoping everything's going well for you guys. Um, this week, we have uh, we have a show for you. We have a show for you this week. We have Cardit Krishnayer coming on at 730 to discuss. He's done this new analysis of uh, uh, Trump versus Biden uh, vote getting throughout the state of Florida. And he's looking at metropolitan statistical areas, MSAs, as opposed to the old rural urban dichotomy. So I look forward to talking about that. We also have some things we'd like to discuss about uh, Governor DeSantis and his issues with covid and how that's getting ready to be a federal case uh we also have um janine moloff janine moloff with the justice report tonight she's talking about marjorie taylor green she has some she has some thoughts janine has thoughts on marjorie taylor green you know that's that crazy um uh jewish uh, space lasers caused the uh, uh fires and um california and you know cory bush uh, requested to move away from her in the uh, office building and so on and so forth so look forward to that the bottom of the next hour that will be uh janine mollis the justice report uh also i've got some information i'm going to share with you guys probably the top of the hour on the GameStop. Uh, short squeeze situation. Now, I know that people who listen to this show, by and large, are not financial whiz kids. Like, uh, as a matter of fact, I'm totally not one. I mean, surprise, surprise, I majored in philosophy. I thank God I can do banking online because uh, I couldn't balance my checkbook back in the day. So um, not too good with that stuff. So I found someone who can explain what went on with the game Scott stop short selling and short squeezing situation. And I got a few thoughts about that. And uh, I, I think that there's a lot of confusion about why people were doing that, why it was a good thing to do or why it wasn't a good thing to do, blah, 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 blah. We're going to address that at the top of the next hour. Um, but first, uh, I'm going to, I've got some stuff I want to share on broken pom- promises, things that have been going on this week having to do with uh, um, things that are important to us. So let's get right to the beat. So you guys remember when uh, you guys remember when Joe Biden said this, right? Hold on. Hold on. 
So Joe Biden was keen on restoring hope and decency and honor uh, to so many people who are struggling right now. And he was uh, he was promising if you get these guys elected in Georgia, the two senators who were then elected, that two thousand dollar checks would, quote, go out the door. Um, you know, what? let's listen to it again. Not an exaggeration. Um, uh, 100% the truth, he says. Now, here's here's another here's another clip. I think this one's important, too, because this is uh, John Ossoff. When we win both of these Senate races, we will pass $2,000 stimulus checks immediately for the American people. I spoke with the president-elect about that personally yesterday. So... Here's John Ossoff, one of the newly elected senators from Georgia, saying that he had personally talked to Joe Biden just yesterday, as of whenever this uh, video was taken, presumably before the election, and that $2,000 checks were going to go out the door the next week. You know, you elect us, lickety split, you know, and, and people went out and uh, and knocked doors with that information. So you had like all of these volunteers, people that um, Stacey Abrams had brought together, you know, uh, uh, we there, there were two big, uh, supposed to be two very big uh, voter reg and GOTV turnout projects, one in Georgia and one in Florida. Stacey Abrams was the head of the one in Georgia, and Andrew Gillum was supposed to be the head of the one in Florida. Well, one really took off, and the other one ended up just paying someone's lawyer's fees. Um, so the one that took off, they actually got people elected. <laughs> they actually, uh, uh, Biden won Georgia and the two senators uh, were elected from Georgia, which is a, a big turn of the tables for, for Georgia. And, you know, all of a sudden you had all of the Democratic talking heads and uh and uh, I don't know if Joe Biden actually said this himself, but it was the, the DNC, the Democratic Party were all saying, oh, no, 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 these are $1,400 checks. So you already got 600 So you don't get the, that $600 again. Now, never mind that that, that $600 had already been a done deal when they made these promises in Georgia they're clawing that back. They're saying, no, no, we're not going to give you that. It, it'll be $1,400 if it's going to be anything. And they're, and they're also floating all these other stories about um, there's a, they've been, um, you know, trying to get a, a bipartisan deal, you know, because like for whatever reason, that is um, the way that uh, the, the Democrats think that they ought to run things after the Republicans did everything through reconciliation and gave away these huge tax uh, gifts to to their wealthy donors and, you know, emptied the Treasury essentially with uh, along party lines. Now we're supposed to be super bipartisan and make sure that, you know, that uh, 
that the Republicans can come in and and uh, undercut everything that's the, that we're trying to do. So there's a group of 10 Republicans that are uh, Mitt Romney, Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, among the group of them. And, and they've put forward uh, a proposal, which is a $1,000 checks. So they keep ratcheting that down, $1,000 checks, a measly $350 billion for cities and uh, states. And that city and state aid is a, is a big sticking point because uh, we've got a lot of places all over the country that are getting ready to go bankrupt. So it's imperative to get money to cities and states. For some reason, the Republicans have put $15 minimum wage in their um in their package. So that should tell you something about how uh, uh, non-controversial a $15 minimum wage is right now. Um, okay. Three months. They're also saying they, they'll, they'll, they'll give you three months of unemployment insurance. Woohoo. And uh, that's knocked down to a uh, hundred dollars a week or knocked down by a hundred dollars a week. This is from Jeff Stein at the Washington post, by the way, uh, a monthly child benefit, whatever that means. And parts of school money. Uh, these are all the things that Jeff Stein listed as uh, uh being contained in the Republican deal. Now, um, he says, it's only been a few hours, but so far the consensus view among Democrats I've spoke to today is that the GOP author is not worth entertaining or delaying Biden's plan over. And he says, heavily caveating again that it's very early, et cetera, and I obviously have not heard from every Dem. So he started walking that back just a couple of hours after he put that out there. So he puts out this this Republican plan that, you know, he says is basically dead on arrival right when he tweets it out. And then uh, three hours later, he walks it back. He says, heavily caveating again that it's very early, et cetera. And I obviously have not heard from every Dem. So obviously what happened is he heard from a lot of other Dems who were saying, oh, yeah, that's what we're going to do. We're going to go for that. That's what we want. Yeah. So screw the $2,000 checks that, that that were promised and screw a, uh, a, a stimulus package that is meaningful for states and cities and screw any kind of meaningful unemployment insurance three more months of ui are you kidding that's not going to cover what what's needed uh you know none of this none of this is is good and then to top it all off you know to put the uh to put the cherry on the shit sunday we have Bernie Sanders getting out on Anderson Cooper last night. On top of the six hundred dollars uh, that we already allocated out to every working class family in the play it again. Got to get checks of fourteen hundred dollars on top of the six hundred dollars uh, that we already allocated out to every working class family in this country and to their kids as well. People. So. So Bernie Sanders is walking it back too, and this is after you know he was he was the one person who wasn't reneging on that on that promise, and that really sucks. 
because people are really suffering. And uh, without a voice like Bernie Sanders actually standing up for us, what do we have? So I want to put a much finer point on this. I think that this needs to be illustrated uh, and fleshed out a little bit further. I came across this TikTok, right? TikTok, TikTok right here. And I think people just need to hear what is being said right here. I don't understand how people overcome poverty in America. I really don't. You know, I've been working since I was 16 years old. I paid, helping my parents mortgage when I was still in high school. I'm 32 years old now. I don't even have a mortgage. I don't have kids. I don't have anything to show for all this time that I paid into this system. I went to college. I have a bachelor's degree. My parents never graduated college. My parents didn't even graduate high school. I'm working on my second bachelor's degree, hoping that this one sticks. You know, like I was paying for nursing school, half loan, half out of pocket, and COVID it. And now I'm looking at my last quarter of nursing school and I'm realizing I'm not going to be able to graduate. I'm literally out of money. And not because I failed classes or I did something wrong, I did everything right. It's just because I'm poor. I was born poor. I'm still poor. They want me to die poor. I don't know how you guys do it. <laughs> okay, so here's the thing. These are the voices that not that are not being heard on media, okay? These are the people who are getting run over in this pandemic. These are the people who are suffering the most, and these are the voices that you are absolutely not allowed to hear. And, you know, maybe that's why we feel alienated. Maybe that's why we feel anomie, you know, as we've been talking about with the Emil Durkheim. In other words, if you leave these voices out of the mix, then you're missing what something that is very critical to understanding what is going on in the world today. Now, this week, a lot of the stories this week kind of kind of intersect. And one of the intersections here is, uh, you know, we're going to talk about the GameStop thing later on. The, it, it, part of that GameStop story is that that short sale, because there was a short squeeze and people organized to push back on the hedge fund people, the hedge fund ended up losing, losing $20 billion. So check it out. This is from CNBC. GameStop short sellers are still not surrendering despite nearly $20 billion in losses this month. This was published on January 29. Now, the person who tweeted this out, Joshua Potash, uh, put right next to it uh, where he Googled cost to end homelessness. $20 billion, it says. According to the Department of Housing and Urban Develop Development, or HUD, it would cost $20 billion to end homelessness in the U.S. Uh, that is less than half of what we spend each year on weight loss and self-improvement. And it's also the amount of money that was set on fire by these jackass hedge fund people. But somehow we've got... We got plenty of money to set on fire and that's absolutely encouraged. And we, we, we make the rules around those people and we make sure that the, their ability to rig the system is built in and nothing can intrude upon it. But, oh my God, if somebody says, Hey, I need my $2,000, well then look out. 
This is going to be, with the margins that we have in the House and the Senate, this is going to be a, a really, really bad midterm for the Democrats. This is already um, shaping up to be pretty, pretty ugly, pretty awful. But wait, it gets worse. There was an agreement that was made that there would be a task force to work on to hammer out details of a health care plan that would be amenable to both the Sanders coalition and to the uh, mainstream Democrats. And so they they worked together and they ham- hammered out this uh, this deal that actually went into the Democratic platform. And then um, and then just for out of the blue, out of nowhere, what, what Joe Biden does is uh, his new uh, relief plan uh, is lifted completely from insurance industry lobbyists, like 100% lifted from them. All of this work that went into the task force and to hammering out a deal and to keeping the coalitions together, all of that was just, it's just out the window because the insurance lobbies uh, sent him a letter and said, this is what you're going to do. And so that's what he's doing. So um, there's a good piece in Jacobin magazine. Joe Biden lifted his health care plan from insurance industry lobbyists. And this this came out um, a week or so ago. But I think it's really pertinent to what's going on with these other broken promises. So President-elect Joe Biden's uh, COVID-19 relief plan does not adopt existing democratic legislation to expand government-sponsored medical coverage, nor does it propose a promised public health insurance option. See, these, these were the two big sticking points. This is, this is what was supposed to happen for Sanders to get out of the way and you know, to you know, create the room for Biden to rise to the top. This, is, this was the deal. Instead, Joe Biden's new plan adopts proposals from health insurance lobbying groups, recent letter to lawmakers that demanded, demanded lucrative new subsidies for insurance companies at a moment when those corporations have recorded record profits as millions lose coverage and many face claims denials. So this is just insane. I mean, this it's it, okay. It's it's um, uh, this shows contempt for for voters, and it's not just for contempt for Sanders voters. It's contempt for all the voters because all the voters went to the polls this uh, presidential season, and Medicare for all and fixing health care was at the top of everyone's list of things to do, and especially during a pandemic. And instead of you know, doing what you're supposed to do with regard to running a government and running it for the people, what Joe Biden has decided to do is to just take all of the demands, whatever it is that the insurance companies demand, he's just going to you know, take that carbon copy it into a, a legislation and make that happen. 
Biden's plan would shovel billions of dollars to private health insurers by providing subsidies for Americans to buy coverage through the ACA marketplaces, which are far more expensive than government health care programs and have at times been plagued by high rates of claim denials. Now, these claim denials in some cases are as high as 40 percent for ACA uh, uh, insurance plans. What good is an insurance plan that is going to deny nearly half of your claims? And you don't know what half either, by the way. You don't know what half going in. You know, it's uh, you know, you might uh, have a heart attack or break your leg and have to go to the hospital. And, you know, you can expect 40 percent of whatever it is that you need to have covered. You can expect 40 percent of it not to be covered, which is exactly the kind of stuff that people can't afford to have going on when they are having to buy into the ACA marketplace because people who are buying into the ACA marketplace, first of all, it's an exceedingly small slice of um, uh, uh, the way that people get insurance now. And it's mostly uh, uh, small business owners and gig workers. So it's people who can't, who, who, you know, have a little bit of money coming in and can't afford healthcare uh, to get healthcare in any other way. Um, the plan also, and this is this is just mind blowing. The plan also would subsidize Cobra continuation coverage through September, allowing workers to keep their employer health insurance when they're laid off. Now, most of the people who've all who've, who've been laid off have already been laid off. Okay, and so the Cobra is not going to help these. The, the, this kind of situation might have made some sense at the beginning of the pandemic but it's also the absolute most expensive way to deliver health care to people it's it's it, it's like paying a valet to or concierge to to push health care out to people and then 40 percent of that health care doesn't actually get to them like it, it's it's the absolute worst way to do it. These initiatives, which could further boost insurers skyrocketing profits, have recently recommended in a letter to lawmakers from America's Health Insurance Plans, AHIP, and Blue Cross Blue Shield Association. These are two insurance lobby groups in Washington that have opposed the expansion of government sponsored healthcare programs. Now let's go back to that clip that I played a few minutes ago with uh, the the person who can't get out of poverty, even though she already has one bachelor's degree, she's going for a nursing degree and can't afford to pay for her last quarter so that she can graduate. This is the kind of stuff that keeps people in poverty, okay? Because all it takes is one of those things that happens in your midlife, whether it's a blood clot or getting COVID or breaking a leg, falling off a ladder, whatever it is, that's going to bankrupt you. And then you're going to spend the next decade trying to dig yourself out of that hole. And that's how these insurance companies stay rich. This is They, they are making people insanely wealthy. And they're doing it by keeping us incredibly poor. And in, in, in the case of insurance companies, they're literally profiting off of our suffering and, and death. 
I mean, there's no other way to put it. And for government to be playing the role for someone like Joe Biden, who was supposed to be like, our kind of guy, no malarkey, you know, for someone like him to be, you know, coming in on behalf of the insurance companies during a pandemic when, uh, you know, people really need some help. He's making sure instead that these insurance companies are continuing to profit off of suffering and death and that the fewest number of people have access to health care during a pandemic. That's what he's doing. They already had a plan uh, worked out. It was already done. And they threw it out the window because a couple of a couple of lobbyist groups wrote a, um, it, it's not even a sternly worded letter. They just wrote a letter. They said, these are our demands. There wasn't any discussion. He just is doing it. Just throw in, throw in the, the whole deal out the window. And, and this is somebody who is supposedly like so big on bipartisanship. Shit, man, he can't even get bipartisanship within his own party. He's not interested in in representing all interests. He's re- interested in representing corporate interests, period. And I'll tell you what, I don't think he's going to be too upset after the midterms when the House and the Senate go back to the Republicans because I do believe that's who he prefers working with. And I think that's pretty clear already. But I mean, you know, hey, we'll see. Still got time. Still got time to pull a public option out of his ass. We'll see if that happens. <laughs> a few days after the letter was sent, AHIP said that health insurance providers are eager to assist the Biden health team. Eager. Super eager. Eager beavers they are. Um, they were so eager, these these uh, health insurance companies were so eager to help the Biden uh, administration along that they uh, they donated heavily to uh, to the inaugural committee <laughs> Two two major insurers in particular, Anthem and Centene, um, which both offer plans on state marketplace uh, exchanges were, were major donors to the inaugural committee. During the 2020 campaign, Biden repeatedly uh, demonized Medicare for all legislation offered by um, uh, Representative Pramila Jayapal and Senator Bernie Sanders, questioning how the country would pay for it and proposing a public health insurance option people could buy into instead. So that was the deal. And I know everybody remembers this the same way everybody remembers that $2,000 checks were supposed to go out. We all remember that that the that the uh, fallback position was a public option, and guess what? There's no public option. <laughs> Yay! Yay, Democrats! Woo! Um, <clears throat> Medicare for all could actually save the country up to six hundred and fifty billion dollars annually, according to the Congressional Budget Office. And Biden instead is proposing some of the most costly and inefficient ways to expand health care coverage. The moves would 
leave people exposed to substantial out-of-pocket costs, deductibles, co-pays, and co-insurance, and uh, other barriers to care, you know, during a, camp- a, a, a pandemic, you know, that's the problem with these kinds of uh, schemes is that, you know, we're, we're in the midst of a pandemic. We need people to go to the doctor. We need people to seek care. And what these, uh, you know, co-pays and co-insurance and high deductibles do, they make it impossible for people to go to the doctor when they need to. Um, healthcare coverage purchased through the ACA marketplace cost 83% more than Medicaid coverage. And ACA plans leave patients with 10 times the amount of -of out-of-pocket costs, according to a recent study by the Journal of American Medical Association, JAMA. So I'm not going to go into much more detail on that. I mean, I think you get the gist. Uh, Meanwhile, at the same time, we've got another competing plan for stim- stimulus and relief. This time, the Republicans are saying they want to cut off the uh, ceiling for people who would receive any kind of relief at people who make $50,000 or less a year. So, I mean, they're, they're really just trying their damnedest to make sure that we are as vulnerable and insecure as possible. And I'm, I, I don't see how we come out of this without a giant backlash. Alrighty, then I'm going to take a short break and I will be right back with our first guest, Kardik Krishnayar. And we've got Kardik Krishnayer on the line. Hey there. You did a wonderful piece this week for the Florida Squeeze, or that people can find on the Florida Squeeze. And I'm going to put a link in the uh, show notes. Um, But you looked at the metropolitan statistical areas, the MSAs, where uh, and looked for where Trump got votes and where Biden got votes. And I know that we've talked about this before, but there's been a lot of, of uh, to do about the rural versus the urban vote with regards to uh, conservatives and Republicans and Trump and Trumpism. But no one has really broken this down into uh, MSAs and into small cities, um, you know, secondary and tertiary cities and what the votes were looking like there. And I think that it's really smart what you did because it it allows people to look at what happened through a different lens. And and, and I and it really resonated with me. So won't you take it away? Tell tell us a, a little bit about this this analysis you did. Yeah, because what we've seen 
in terms of analysis of the vote in Florida and in general everywhere is things are either broken down by county or they're broken down uh, by um, congressional district, right? So what I wanted to see was, okay, we know that Biden won all of the metropolitan counties in Florida, all of the, the so-called metropolitan counties. Uh, so why, how is it that he lost the state if that's the case? So looking at MSAs allows us to actually see uh, and group outlying areas with, um, with, with, with those core urban areas. And what to me was really fascinating, and I think this is, this got you also was the camp of uh, St. Petersburg metro area. Now, in fact, I, I, I now want to go and look at metro areas around the country because I actually think the Tampa St. Pete metro area might have been the largest metro area in the country that went for Donald Trump. It's possible the Houston metro area did also. I checked that. I think the Dallas Fort Worth metro, Metroplex actually voted for Biden this time. Uh, first time, it's the first time Karen County's voted, which is Fort Worth, for uh, a Democrat in over 50 years. Um, but I even had people push back on me saying, well, Tampa voted for, uh, for uh, basically Tampa, St. Petersburg, and Clearwater, because it's called the Tampa, St. Petersburg, Clearwater MSA, uh, voted for, uh, for Biden. So how did he lose the metro area? Well, first off, we don't know that Clearwater actually voted for Biden. See, again, you're looking at counties. So uh, I actually believe Clearwater probably voted for Trump because Northern Pinellas has become more and more Republican. And uh, uh, Biden won Pinellas County by 1,200 votes. Okay, he won Hillsborough County. In terms of counties with over a million people in the country, I think Hillsborough might have been uh, Trump's worst county. Uh, excuse me, Biden's worst county. The other county that comes to mind that was probably not very good for Biden with over a million people would be Maricopa in Arizona, where Phoenix is, although actually Biden won Arizona this time, so maybe he did better in Maricopa than the Democrats normally do there. That's how, that, that, Orange County, California, and a handful of other million-plus counties, Democrats have to struggle with. So the margin in, Mil- in Hillsborough County plus the margin in Pinellas County for Biden was less than the margin um, Trump took out of Pasco County. Pasco County has over a half a million residents. It's not the sticks, as a lot of Democrats like to imply it is, or some far-flung place. And then Hernando County, which is also in the Tampa Bay metropolitan area, uh, also voted for Trump by a pretty big margin, but it it doesn't have as many people as as Pasco. Um, So the margin for Biden in in Hillsborough and Pinellas was more than offset in Pasco. Then this same person came back at me and said, oh, well, that's not really Tampa. Pasco County. Okay, so this is why the Democrats lose, Brooke. This is their attitude. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not really the Tampa Bay area. And I, and I, I got snarky and said, well, it's one person, one vote. So if you think a voter in Tampa counts more than a voter in Newport Ritchie, well, uh, unfortunately, that's not the, uh, not the system. Maybe you should push for a constitutional amendment that counts uh, urban voters because they're more enlightened or whatever, uh, twice as much as, as, as uh, ex-urban voters or, or voters in in outlying suburban areas. And in fact, much of Pasco is not, it, a lot of Pasco County is actually suburban. Now, I wouldn't be classified it as ex-urban. Um, places like Holiday, um, Newport Ritchie, Port Ritchie, I think they tend to be kind of like spillover suburbs from Pinellas. But like I said, Northern Pinellas it doesn't vote 
Northern Pinellas is probably as bad as Pasco now for Democrats. It's just that um, Biden was able to break even the county, win the county by about a thousand votes because of St. Petersburg, which is the southern tip of Pinellas County. To get further north in that urban county, it gets more and more Republican. Uh, then the Jacksonville area, I had a prominent political consultant in the state email me this morning saying, oh, I read your piece. I thought we had won Jacksonville. Where are you getting your numbers from? And again, um, we won Duval County, and Biden was the first Democrat since Jimmy Carter in 1976 to carry Duval County. Big victory for the Democrats. Not, not denying, not, not, not taking anything away from that. I'm thrilled. Jacksonville's been a uh, Duval County. The urban core of Jacksonville, the city of Jacksonville, has been something I've wanted to put for, for, for decades now. However, the Jacksonville metropolitan area also includes St. John's County, Clay County, and Baker County. Don't worry about Baker. That is actually pretty much a rural county. But Clay and St. John's are growing counties. They're growing quicker than Duval are. They're gaining new residents quicker than Duval. And both gave Trump huge margins mm-hmm. in this election. So these are the areas that are actually growing faster than the urban core. And they're going towards Trump or going towards the Republicans by larger margins than they have in the past. Um, and then as you go further down the list, Brooke, you know, the fifth largest metro area in the state is the, is the Sarasota area, Northport, Bradenton. Um, bigger margin for, uh, for for Trump than expected. And then you keep going down. Even the, the Port St. Lucie metropolitan area, which had been carried by by Obama as recently in 2012, was a 10-point um, win for, for, uh, for Trump or close to 10 points. Although, uh, in fairness, you know, we know that that's been the swing, right? The... Uh, 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 Obama won the state by three, three points in, in 2008. I mean, if you look kind of exactly at this, Obama won by three, uh, about three points in 2008. He won by about a point in 2012. Clinton lost by about uh, a point in 2012, and, uh, 2016, and now Biden lost by over three points in 2016. So while the electorate is very kind of fluctuating throughout the country, Florida, there's a consistent uh, drift over the course of the last 12 years, when you look at presidential politics towards the Republicans in each subsequent election, and a lot of it has to do with these these areas, which are not rural areas, uh, contrary to the media narrative, contrary to the narrative from a lot of Democratic operatives uh, who really don't know what they're talking about. Uh, these places are um, are uh, going further and further to the Republicans. And one other point, uh, there was a Democratic operative who I like, but um, doesn't really know this state as well as, as this person thinks they did, that DM'd me yesterday on Twitter after seeing this article and said, oh, I didn't realize Tallahassee and Gainesville were so small compared to these other places. <laughs> and I'm thinking, that's again why the Democrats lose, because they assume these college towns are bigger than places like Ocala or Sarasota or Fort Myers or Naples or, or uh, the Melbourne Palm Bay area, right, Brevard County. And they're not. I was actually, when I did it, was surprised Tallahassee was the 12th largest metro area in the state. I thought it was smaller than that. And Gainesville was like 16th. Um, so that means there are 11 metropolitan areas larger than Tallahassee, which is our state capital in the state of Florida. Nine of those 11 metro areas larger than Tallahassee voted for Donald Trump. So these are not small towns. These are not rural areas. Nine of the 11 metropolitan areas in this state larger than our state capital, which you know, is an urban area. I don't consider Tallahassee a rural area. I don't think anyone would. Um, so nine of the 11 urban centers bigger than that 
in the state voted for Trump. That's uh, astounding. Obviously, the, the two, I, everyone should probably guess the two big ones that didn't, which was the, the Miami, Fort Lauderdale, South Florida area, and then the Orlando area. Um, but outside of those two areas, it's very, very uh, tough time for the Democrats in Florida, probably worse than it's ever been. And we talked a lot about how much money and attention Fort Myers was getting from the um, national campaign during this cycle. And I'm looking at their numbers. So Trump won in the Cape Coral, Fort Myers, MSA. Trump got 62.4% of the vote. And I'm comparing that down the list. You go to Melbourne, Titusville, Palm Bay, and Trump won only by 58.3%. So Melbourne, Titusville, Palm Bay is uh, is less red than Cape Coral and Fort Myers. Yeah, and unfortunately for the Democrats, Cape Coral and Fort Myers is growing faster. So mm-hmm. this, is, um, this is the problem, right? I mean, the areas that are growing, uh, even in that Tampa Bay area, the areas that are growing um, are um, Patsco, as I mentioned, and the eastern part of Hillsborough County, which was fairly Republican in this election, which is why Hillsborough was only 52% for Biden, even though um, the city of Tampa went heavily for Biden, right? So, mm-hmm. so places like Fort Myers are continuing to grow. We're seeing uh, uh, the, the Sarasota-Bradenton area, uh, which is slightly has slightly more people than the, the the Fort Myers area. That's continuing to grow. The Naples area, um, the the, uh, the 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 uh, Deltona Daytona Beach area. Now this is unbelievable because that MSA is just Volusia County. Um, Trump got fifty seven point one percent there. Brooke, you and I both remember when that was one of the core Democratic areas in the state. In yeah. fact, I can relate this from the two thousand recount when in. I will admit, in hindsight, we were trying to cherry-pick counties under the direction of uh, Ron Klain, who was now the uh, White House Chief of Staff, and, uh, and and David Boyce, who was our lead attorney. Uh, Klain was the, kind of the political advisor. They made the decision before we opted for a statewide recount, which is what we should have done from the beginning. Um, the Gore campaign decided we want to recount four counties. Now, three of them are obvious. Dave, Broward, Palm Beach. The fourth county we picked was Volusia because we figured it was so democratic that you would squeeze more votes out of there, which in fact you did. I mean, once we recounted Volusia, there were more there were more votes. And in fact, when I see that fifty seven percent for Trump, that is exactly what Gore got um, around what Gore got fifty seven, fifty eight percent in Volusia in two thousand. So uh, what you what you're seeing is in twenty years that place has flipped by uh, sixteen points if you go you know one side to the other. Unbelievable. Now, how does that happen? That happens because this is a party that very clearly uh, has lost sight of how to communicate with voters outside of big cities. Um, and, and, um, and probably a, uh, a party that has, has uh, lost sight of how to, uh, uh, not only of how to communicate with those voters, but even how to identify those voters, right? How to find them, where to go to find them. Um, they're not... These are places Democratic operatives drive through, right? I mean, a lot of them are, uh, say some really uninformed things, like they drive down I-75 or I-95, and it seems like because um, there's four exits for a place, and 
they see signs for gas stations or whatever, truck stops. But that's all it is. You know, it's just like the places in the panhandle. Um, yeah, there was a there was a Democratic operative who was shocked who, uh, when I told them how many people live in Polk County. And I told them, look, there are more people in Polk County than in the entire congressional district uh, in, 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 the, in the panhandle, the district between, district two between uh, the Appalachian and Swanee Rivers. And he didn't believe me. He thought Polk County was as small as like Madison County because of his experience driving on I-4 or driving on whatever road and not seeing much from the highway. So they, they, they also are very uninformed when they think of these places. You know, they drive Volusia, they just whisk through on I-4, um, going to Orlando or I-95, going to South Florida, right? They actually, mm-hmm. They're not actually aware of these places. Um, and, I, I, and maybe the Republicans are as arrogant and those people are just more inclined to vote for Republicans. I don't know. But the truth is the Democrats are really arrogant, and that's why they're in this position. Well, I'm really uninformed. That's the other point. Yes. So so you've got consultants who are arrogant and uninformed, and they don't know how to communicate to voters. But you also have a, a, a culture within the party that has adopted uh, identity politics to the exclusion of everything else, you know, and and. I really, I, I wish that there was a more elegant way of putting that, but but there's not. Uh, at least, so, so you mentioned Volusia County during the 2000 recount. At least when uh, you know during the Clinton years, uh, it was it was the economy stupid. People actually talked about jobs and actually talked about, um, and and there was a an uptick in uh, uh, economic. Uh, health, <laughs> economic security for people that that happened in the in the late '90s, especially, and so you know you went into the to the 2000s uh, with a narrative I think that was a lot stronger than what we have now because basically what we have now is uh, everybody has to be nice to everybody based on you know their their identity, whatever their identity position is. And I think that that has uh, alienated a lot of people. I think that, I think that the, uh, that uh, a lot of the discourse that we have around privilege has, uh, has alienated a lot of people. Uh, I, I think that, you know, we have to reconcile what's going on with systemic racism in the country, but the way that we run, identity politics through the culture of the party that's not doing it that's not it they're doing it wrong and it's and it's it's pushed people away and let's talk about Volusia specifically in 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 regards to identity politics because i i think lots of areas in florida are filled with kind of these um working class white protestants you know the types of people you find in, in the rural midwest or in, 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 in uh, conservative places. However, Volusia County is filled with a lot of white Catholics that have moved from the Northeast or from the Midwest. They, they have not been the beneficiaries of privilege. I'm sorry. Look, I, I always make, draw this line. I know it annoys people uh, to no end uh, between Protestants and Catholics. That's just, my, um, that's just my orientation politically. Okay, I come from an era when... Um, when 
uh, ethnic Catholic voters, ethnic Irish and Italian Catholic voters were reliably Democratic voters, partly because they had gone through so much discrimination themselves in northern cities or wherever they were. And in Florida, they were always discriminated against. I mean, uh, the Catholics were the great boogeymen, along with uh, uh, blacks and Jews. You know, they were they were grouped together, right? I mean, now I think there's a very uh, in the identity era of the Democratic Party, there's a there's a the, the uh, there's a lot of talk to anti-Semitism and racism. Well, I can tell you anti-Catholicism goes with that anti-Semitism and anti-racism, anti-Semitism and racism historically in the state. Um, so there are a lot of white working class Catholic voters in Volusia County. It's one of the few places in Florida with that. Um, Flagler, to a certain extent, has, has some white Catholic voters. Um, and, um, and, and St. John's, which we mentioned as part of the Jacksonville metropolitan area, and Biden got his clock clean there. So I think by taking those who have been, maybe they themselves, but their parents victims of discrimination in large cities in the Northeast and the Midwest, and then we're turning them into saying, well, you benefited from white privilege, which just shows kind of the, 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 the ignorance of some of, of the commentary. Because I do believe white privilege is a thing. But I do. I only. I. I think you have to be careful who you you apply it to, right? Um, and to me, white ethnic Irish Catholics and Italian Catholics are not the people you apply it to. So they, there's the backlash. Volusia County, I think, is a great example book for us to look at um, throughout the course of the next couple of years and dissect what's happened there to the Democratic Party. Um, and, and it's a county. I'm. I'm just horrified by the numbers of, that are coming out of that county. I mean, I. I uh, it, it was always a core Democratic county. And um, the other thing that bothers me is that there are people in your part of the state, um, in uh, central Florida, in Orange County, that are part of this greater progressive infrastructure uh, that they built in the state that have never paid attention to Volusia. And, mm-hmm. and while some of these people were organizing Orange and Osceola, and now Seminole, they allowed Volusia to drift completely in the other direction, uh, you know, a place that's 30, 40 miles from them, depending where in Orange County they live. So um, I, I'm really horrified by the, the inability of the so-called progressives in your part of the state to, 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 to do something to, 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 uh, to stem this tide. It might be too late now. Maybe if, if uh, these uh, community organizations and such, they go into uh, Volusia County now, okay, great. They should have been there eight years ago. Yeah, well, and look at what's going on in Osceola. So Osceola is a county where those uh, where that pro- progressive infrastructure has done a lot of work. And uh, Osceola as a county could very well turn red very soon. Yeah. It was it, it, it had been reliably blue for a couple of cycles. But something that they're doing is turning people off. It, it's something they're doing is just not working. Yeah, I, I think it's pretty clear that the Democrats have a national Latino problem. Uh, they don't um, they, they have some communication issue with established Latinos who um, now we can talk about the right wing um, South American and Cuban Latinos in South Florida. I, I think, um, look, I, 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 uh, I sympathize with Biden and the Democrats on that. I think you do too. So they, we're talking about something very different. We're talking about mm-hmm. uh, working class Latinos who 
are from Puerto Rico or from the Dominican Republic uh, or from Mexico who uh, the Democrats or the community organizations that have organized them are not messaging properly to. Um, they are effectively telling them you must vote for us because of your identity without giving them appealing to them on uh, on economic issues or issues of economic anxiety and also on social issues. Right. I, I don't um, I don't think and I know this is very difficult. Obviously, I live a couple miles from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. I've, I've never handled a gun in my life. I'm, I'm very anti-gun. Um, my wife works for the state legislator from here now and you know, her bill, her, her first bill that she's filing is obviously a gun control bill. It's what you do in, in Broward County. Um, but I, I think that issue has really hurt us with Latinas and Latinos. Uh, I know it has in Texas. And um, there are people in Democratic Party organizations who have sought to keep power by excluding Latinos or by um, or by minimizing their ability to actually control the party. And this went on for years in Osceola County. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> our, our friend Dave Trotter, mutual friend Dave Trotter, and I would go through the Osceola DEC uh, board, of, board of directors every, every year or two just to get a kick out of it, how, how few Latin names were, Latino names were on there, and how it was all the same uh, families from St. Cloud and um, not even Kissimmee, really St. Cloud and, uh, and, and, uh, um, and that part of the county, the eastern part of the area east of the Florida Turnpike, where, where there were some old kind of white Democratic, waspy Democratic families. Some were more conservative, some were, you know, your classic white liberals. But while they had hung on to power in that county, Forever, mm-hmm. to the point where I think a lot of Latino leaders in Osceola County are like, you know, they put their hands up and like, come, come and get us type of thing, right? You know, we're, we're free agents. Yep. Well, you know, in, in, I was mentioning earlier, too, contrasting the uh, voter reg and GOTV effort that was done in Georgia versus the effort that the semi-effort, the non-effort that was put forth in Florida. So Stacey Abrams had uh, her job in Georgia, which she did amazingly well. And Andrew Gillum, uh, uh, to contrast, was given the job here in Florida and didn't deliver anything. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Right. And, and you know, and uh, as we've talked about before, he's, he's being talked about for a Senate race or for the governor's race, some of these, one of these statewide races, they want to rehabilitate Andrew Gillum, who couldn't, couldn't be bothered to do voter reg and GOTV during uh, 2020. So Florida has gone completely red. I don't understand why he thinks he's entitled to any kind of, you know, place in the, in the, the party at this point. Yeah, well, these are people like Gillum has never worked a, uh, a day in his life in a real job, right? He, he got elected to the uh, uh, to the city commission when he was in was still at, the, at Florida State or had just graduated, and uh, was also hired by the state party, and then went to work for people for the American Way, et cetera. So that's how entitlement starts. When you tell someone from twenty one or twenty two that they're so great, they're the future of the party, and basically let them get away with anything. I think 
the uh, uh, and and in addition, you're a party that is absolutely desperate, like the Democrats are in Florida, for um, for anything because you you're, you're consistently lose. So in this case, you're talking about a guy that was uh, told Democrats fell out of power in this state in 1998. Definitively fell out in 2002 when the attorney general's uh, seat, which was the last kind of vestige of power um, in the Democratic Party, flipped to the Republican balance. It turns out Charlie Crist got elected attorney general and he, he uh, was fighting with the Republicans a lot. But we didn't have any beachhead at that point. Um, uh, the, we also had uh, held the insurance commissioner's office uh, until uh, until 2000 when Bill Nelson had to resign to run for U.S. Senate. Um, so we by 2002, we were out of power. 2003, in January or February, so I'm talking about months after that election, where the Republicans finally consolidate complete power over the state of Florida. Andrew Gillum pops up. And I'm introduced to him by Scott Maddox, who had been the mayor of Tallahassee, who was then the Florida party chair, saying this guy is like our future. And, um, you know, he's running for city commission. I've hired him to work for the Democratic Party. This was, I want to say it was February of 2003. And so that guy has been told since then that he's the greatest thing since sliced bread. He has all these ethical issues, uh, but the Democrats don't seem to want to break with him. And, uh, it's actually quite alarming that 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 that, that guy. Uh, look, I mean, there, there's a possibility. I know the Democrats are really high on uh, on Val Demings as a candidate. Uh, I, I'm not a huge Val Demings fan, but whatever. They're high on her as a, as, as a statewide candidate. There is a possibility Demings could be challenged in a primary by Gillum and lose. Now think about that for a minute. That's how popular, based on some of the polling I've seen, this guy remains among Democratic voters. Unbelievable. Um, and by the way, yeah. And by the way, Gwen Graham doesn't uh, doesn't poll that well. Nor, nor do any of the other uh, Democrats. Nikki Freed, she doesn't poll as well as Gillum does among Democrats. What has happened is on the mainstream left, much like on the Trump right, there is a culture of victimization that's grown. Although I think it's grown everywhere. I think it's grown on the progressive left. So I think it's grown mainstream left, center right. A culture uh, of victims, so a culture yeah. of what? And, and then victimization. Oh, victimization. So yes, I there agree. Is, yeah. So there is an absolute victimization boomerang like culture thing where Andrew Gillum is a victim. He's been victimized by um, a combination of the uh, the the uh, the, uh, the the racist uh, elements in the Democratic Party, this mythical racist elements. Uh, and uh, the media and the FBI and uh, and the Republicans, right? Everybody is, has victimized this guy. So we need to stand with him. And now he's gotten depressed because of it and has all these other things, uh, all these other problems. Never mind. Oh, and the other thing, speaking of identity, that I've been told about Gillum is my critique of Gillum as someone the Democrats shouldn't run for high office because of his ethical lapses. And by the way... Um, where there's smoke, there's fire with Gillum. There's actually those of us who, who know a lot more about him do know that not only are the things that have been in public domain almost certainly true, um, there's more to it than that. I mean, there's mm-hmm. other stuff just below the surface and things that's been forgotten. But basically, I've been told by some 
Democratic, prominent Democrats. Well, you can't hold him. You can't hold Andrew to the same standard you would hold, I, I don't know, Gwen Graham to. Right? Yeah, let's use her as the example. Because he is African-American, and he's an African-American politician, a trailblazer. So you know it's kind of more difficult and different for him. So part of the identity problem is if you're a white Democrat, you have a higher threshold in terms of people's uh, people's opinions within the party. It's probably dip more difficult to win a nomination at this point if you're running one-on-one with someone like Gillum. Now, I was told that by more than one person. You need, you need to... Uh, in fact, one of the people told me, hey, we know what you're saying about Gillum is actually correct, but what you're missing is... Um, it happened because he's African-American. If he were white, they would have just looked the other way with this stuff, which is not true, by the way. In it, fact, in the same scandal, you have a couple of white office holders and, and, and white uh, officials, Paige Carter Smith, who used to be the executive director of the Florida Democratic Party. I mean, you've had white people go down, too. Well, so Dwight Bullard didn't enjoy that kind of treatment from the party. And uh, no. what was the name of the guy who ran for, uh, was it Senate? He, he ran the state statewide race in 2006, or it would have been right when I when I first moved here. Oh, Kendrick Meek. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Meek. Right. Kendrick so Kendrick Meek, we were told Kendrick Meek can't win statewide because he's African-American. That's what the Democratic Party told us at the time. Absolute bunk. They just didn't want this guy that was a, a progressive fighter who would fought uh, Jeb Bush on class size, who had done all these, can't Kendrick Meek was great. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't want him being the African-American to represent the state party. But if it's got a guy like Gillum, a guy with no principles whatsoever other than self-promotion, then uh, uh, then they're all in on it. That's I mean, right. In fact, I will tell you, with some of the same people, it was some of the very same people who screwed Kendrick Meek African-American, if you don't know him, he was an African-American U.S. House member from, from Miami. Um, fantastic liberal. You know, one of the best progressives uh, in the House, uh, which actually closely aligned with Tim Ryan from Ohio, who I think probably everybody knows. Um, they were buddies. They had, they had come into the Congress around the same time. I think they were freshmen together, and they, they had formed a very close bond um, uh, on those economic justice issues. And it was great because you had one, that, one guy that was a, a Catholic from kind of a a, a, a traditional um, uh, manufacturing district in, in Youngstown. And then you had this guy that was a, an African-American from a very urban district in Miami, um, talking from the St. Chongshu. So Meek was denied the nomination. Well, he was nominated, but they tried, to, uh, they tried to deny him the nomination by running Jeff Green, uh-huh. um, uh, backed by the sugar companies and, and uh, some of the other um, dirty interests in the Florida Democratic Party. Uh, Green was defeated in the primary by me, but then the Democratic apparatus, led by the president, President Obama, and his uh, uh, chief political strategist, David Axelrod, um, conspired to undermine, um, under, uh, uh, to undermine uh, um, Meek and back Charlie Crist, who was running as an independent uh, in, that, in that race. Now, some of the same people on the state level who worked to undermine Meek in 2010 gave us were the ones that were pushing the idea that we have to nominate Andrew Gillum over Gwen Graham because he was African-American and he would turn out the African-American vote and he was 
some sort of, you know, it's time and that all, you know, uh, all, all, all those sorts of sloganeering. So it's pretty funny. Some of the individuals, I'm not going to name them, but some of the individuals who sunk me and were behind behind everyone's back saying, oh, yeah, we can't nominate a black guy. Or the same ones who said, we have to nominate the black guy eight years later because it was their guy. It was a guy that was in their pocket versus a guy that was fighting for, for social and economic justice. That's uh, Incredibly it. fighting. I mean, I know Gil McClainby was fighting, but McClainby uh, uh, was fighting. I mean, at the same time, you know, that 2010, the whole thing was a disaster. So, um uh, Joe Biden, who was the vice president, had gotten involved in a primary. Um, the Arlen Specter from Pennsylvania had switched parties and become a Democrat. Admiral Joe Stestak was running um, in the Democratic primary. Good liberal, um, decorated war veteran uh, who had been, uh, uh, by the way, a, a favorite of mine uh, when he was in the U.S. House. And, uh, and Biden went to the match for, for Specter. It turned out you know, Stestak won the primary, but then was so damaged, he lost to Pat Toomey in the general. That's how we lost that seat. Um, and then, so that was Biden. And then in, in, in Florida, it was Obama and Axelrod that were messing around uh, in the uh, in the primary here. Uh, Kendrick Meek had backed Hillary Clinton. So, so I guess the common theme was that Seth Sack had backed Hillary Clinton in 2008, and, and Meek had backed Hillary Clinton in 2008. So that seemed to be like the criteria for the Obama people. So if someone backed Clinton... In, in 2008, there were repercussions when they tried to step up to the next office. That's interesting. Well, and I think that there's a, a strong whiff of they want people in their back pocket. And you can't tell me that people in Volusia County and, you know, and in, in, in all these MSAs, what the people we first started talking about, you can't tell me that, that there isn't a perception out there that the, uh, Democratic Party works for just a few people and and they aren't the people that identify with those voters. You know, I, I mean, when you uh, it seems to me with with Gillum, he was so uh, compromised and we found out later, you know, like, 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 we knew he was under investigation by the FBI. And we knew that he had ethical right. lapses and so on and so forth. But yeah. it was a, it, it was a, it, something that was whispered and uh, an open secret about, you know, the, the whole bisexuality thing and cheating on his wife and all of that. And now we find, you know, all kinds of, you know, uh, issues with addiction. And, it seems to me that the Democratic Party seeks out those kinds of compromised people to, you know, do the work for them, you know, because they're they're uh, they're in their pocket 100 percent. Yeah. And, and I think in the case of Gillum, he had been groomed from a very young age to be that guy. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, that's effectively the problem is I think that you have people like that. And then when you present them to Florida voters, uh, Florida voters can see through that. I mean, and also I think the Democrats were thinking they were going to be running against Adam Putnam. Um, and uh, when they end up running against Ron DeSantis, uh, but this goes back to uh, the kind of the, 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 uh, um, the perception Democrats have, and maybe poll the, the kind of inherent bias in polls, right? Mm -hmm. Which the Democrats have been led astray by. So there was this assumption because DeSantis was, and we talked about it last week, right? He was one of the, the six founding members or eight founding members, whatever it was, of the Freedom Caucus. 
And he had a very extreme profile in terms of his congressional record. Um, had been one of the leading uh, agitators in 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 in, uh, in stirring up uh, uh, controversy against the Obama administration, right? In, in league with, with the likes of Devin Nunez and, and, and Jim Jordan. So um, he had been in that in that group. The Democrats just assumed he was going to be very easy to beat. That was the other problem. Mm-hmm. So as it became obvious the last week to ten days before that primary in August that he was going to win. Uh, the primary, they had they had assumed for two years, or actually they had assumed basically for four years they were going to be running against um, against Adam Putnam. The only caveat was that there was some speculation that Marco Rubio would run for governor in 2018 uh, because there had been there had been battles within the, the the Republican Party of Florida. I don't know what's happening now with with those two guys as, as, as U.S. senators together. But there have been battles in, within the RPOF between the Scott faction and the Rubio faction. Um, and the Rubio faction had the upper hand at that point with uh, Blazingola um, as, this, as the uh, party chair and the connections to Richard Corcoran, who was very connected to Marco Rubio, uh, going back 15 years. A more um, Cor- Corcoran um, is now kind of aligned himself with, with Ron DeSantis. Or, or at least DeSantis, I think, felt like it was better to have Corcoran in the administration to keep some control over him than having him on the outside agitating. But so that was they thought they were going to run against Putnam. There was some leading thought maybe Rubio turns around um, uh, he, and he runs for um, runs for governor in 2018. But when it was obvious he wasn't going to uh, after he was damaged by his presidential run, um, then they thought they were running against Putnam. And when they thought they were, when they finally thought they were getting DeSantis as the opposition, we go back to the arrogance of the party. They mm-hmm. thought, okay, we can basically nominate anyone. Um, we, we don't have to be strategic about the nomination and nominate a guy like, like uh, Phil Levine or, or someone like Gwen Graham who might be more palatable and not have all this ethical baggage. Although, Truthfully, Levine had a little bit, but not nothing like approaching Gillum's level of ethical baggage. So at that point, it became okay. Let's um, let, let let's be let's let's push this guy because he's in our back pocket. This will be better for us, and we'll be able to run all the executive agencies. You know, it'll be will be the graft will be un- enormous for Democratic operatives if somehow. Um, and I'm already seeing this in Miami. I mean, I love Dan- Daniela Levine Cava. I've been a big fan of hers for years, but I'm already seeing. Uh, even the inefficiency of the vaccine rollout in Dade County has to do with the fact that she's she's stuffed the place with all these Democratic operatives that have not had uh, that have had to rely on policing candidates for 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 years because there's been no Democrat for 20 years because there's been no Democrat that's been mayor of Miami Dade County in 20 years and there's been no Democratic governor in the state in 20 22 years so all these people have uh, uh, have, have never had executive jobs. And once they get into these executive agencies, they run hog wild. We're seeing it in Dade County now. It would ha- it would have happened if Gillum had been elected, which is what these people were counting on, that they would all have jobs in the administration. I think you and I, Brooke, actually privately had talked about this in October uh, of 2018 as we approached that election. Mm-hmm. And that was what they were seeing. They were seeing a guy that they could they could r- run roughshod over, whereas in the case of a Gwen Graham or a Phil Levine, it may not have worked that way. And then... To complicate matters, they then put Chris King 
you know, seems like a nice guy, but a nothing, really. You know, an empty, a, a big nothing. They put him on the ticket. <laughs> to be as safe as possible. Um, and lo and behold, they, they concoct a way to lose to Ron DeSantis, who, unlike Rick Scott, Rick Scott wasn't a terribly competent governor. This, this is really why there's so much damage going on right now with DeSantis. Um, what are we, two years into DeSantis? But even a year into DeSantis, he had probably done more in terms of, of executive agencies and, and using raw power than Scott did in eight years. Uh, DeSantis is not only a bad guy uh, and, and, a, and a right-wing ideologue, but he's also really, really ruthless and really smart. Um, and we're getting run over in this state as a result. Mm-hmm. So the, I guess the summation of all this is it's the, it's the arrogance of the Democrats that have cost them um, votes in places like Volusia County. It's the arrogance of the Democrats that cost that cost them that these previous statewide races, and it's the arrogance of the Democrats that led to Andrew Gillum being the nominee and concocting a way to lose that very winnable race. And now, even when you have the contrast with Stacey Abrams, even now you have Democrats pushing Andrew Gillum as a statewide candidate in 2022. Unless it's just possible the Democrats don't think they're going to win anything in the state anymore, and they they can all make money off of the campaign. This, this is another thing, just to, to, to close on this, this is another reason why Democrats are so uh, ruthless in the way they charge candidates and they, 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 they take 15% off of, uh, off of the, uh, um, off of the mail, you know, these kickbacks, 15% off the media buys, because the Democrats never win in this state, right? So you actually can't make money. You're never going to get appointed to some executive position. So you have to make your money during the campaign cycle. Um, when I've observed the Republican politics, yeah, some of that goes on. Um, but it, it's not quite at the same level because there's this inherent, inherent promise, hey, we'll pay you a little bit now. And uh, when we win, that's when you'll get rewarded. So um, maybe if the Democrats started winning elections, the culture would change. But um, it seems like they want to keep that culture while trying to win elections so then they can get draft when they're in in office too wow that's a good point it's more expensive to uh, run losing what uh races because uh, consultants want to be paid more because there's there's no upside there's no uh payback once people are in office well cardic thank you so yeah. much for all of the uh, that's very illuminating and i think that uh you know as we go forward into this next year, we're, uh, you know, we got the redistricting and we got, you know, people who are starting to show interest in running these statewide races. Maybe this will break up. Maybe, you know, Gillum won't be the uh, um, uh, coronated this time. So we, we shall see. We'll keep an eye on it. Yeah, let's, let's hope that's the case. Thank you, Brooke, and uh, uh, great chatting with you as always. All right. Thank you so much. Okay, guys. Let's take a short break and we'll be right back. Okay, as promised, I am bringing you a great explanation or explainer of short selling, short squeezing, and what 
actually was going on. What is? How did people make money? What is this situation with GameStop and Robinhood and the hedge fund ding-dongs? So here is Brother Q, who did uh, a number of t- TikToks that he shared on his Twitter feed uh, that explained all this. And uh, I'm very thankful to him because this is what actually helped me understand uh, the the inner workings of this financial uh, miasma, um, you know, for a non for a non numbers person, for a non you know financial uh, education person, this is not my wheelhouse. Okay, um, but I got it, and so that's okay. Take two. Okay, so the last time that I was here, I said that I wasn't going to get into all the intricacies of short selling and and that kind of stuff. And then I made the mistake at the end of the video of saying, yeah, if you have any questions, feel free to get at me. And then my email inbox and my DMs just went. Also, my mom saw a video of me cursing on the internet and she wasn't very happy about that. Me with a mortgage and full-time jobs and kids, I, I, I still... Yeah, so I have to record another one with clean language this time. Okay, so the the question that I got the most often was, how is it that these companies were actually losing money? You explained that short selling could lose you money on paper, but how were they actually losing cash? Like, how were these companies losing billions upon billions of dollars? Which I'm more than happy to explain, but excuse me if I use a little bit of language that dances around the subject because I'm... I'm not a multi-billionaire and I don't want to get sued by them. I'm not I'm not joking. You're looking at everything I have. These books behind me, that's it. That's 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 my lifetime investment. The thing to know about hedge funds is they're not like your normal mutual fund or pension fund or ETF or anything like that. You have to have a lot of money to be able to invest with hedge funds. And because of that accredited investor designation, i.e. you have to be like a multimillionaire or you have to be an organization that has millions upon millions of dollars to invest, they're not regulated quite the same as these other types of funds, which means they can take riskier stances, they can make riskier kinds of trades. And one of those, which is normally not allowed or at least expressly discouraged in the regular funds industry is what's called a naked short sale. Okay, so here he's really getting to the bottom of this. A naked short sale. That is what's going on with GameStop, okay? And it's he's going to explain why it's naked and 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 what's going on with it right here. Which means they can take riskier trades they can do things that a lot of these funds normally are not allowed to do, or at least highly discouraged from doing if they don't want to have regulators crawling up their behinds. And one of those is what's called a naked short sale. So remember last time I explained that if you are the seller of a short call contract, then the person to which you have sold the instrument, better way of putting it, if the purchaser of the options contract based on the strike, oh my God. Okay, stock go down, seller make money. Stock go up, seller is boned, buyer make money. But all of this involves selling an option on a security that you actually own. That is a regular short sale implies that the security for which you are selling the option to either purchase or not purchase is something that belongs to you. Not so in a naked short sale. Not so in a naked short sale. 
that's what's different here. They are playing with something that they don't own. This is playing with fire. And only these multimillionaires and you know super, super rich people who run hedge funds are allowed to do this. He continues. And this is where we get into the weird stuff that hedge funds are allowed to do. Thank God I did not swear. A hedge fund doesn't even have to own the stock. It can sell the option on the stock that it doesn't own. If you own the stock, you have covered your tail. That's why it's called a covered call. However, on a naked call, you've just left your behind hanging out there in the wind for everyone to see. And if you end up getting boned by the stock going up in price, guess what happens? You actually have to go find the stock now. But what happens if you have to locate the stock that you had in the contract guaranteed that you were going to provide to the purchaser of that contract and there's just no stock out there to buy. What happens then? So this is why you've probably heard a little term called short squeeze. You've probably also heard another term called the float. Okay, so it's a squeeze and a float. That's what we're getting ready to learn about right now. So the float looks a little something like this. If you are a publicly traded company, you're not just going to like give all of your shares out to the market to purchase. You're probably going to have a lot of shares being held by people who are in control of the company. You're also going to have a lot of shares for employees that have a stock purchase plan. Those are what are called closely held shares. And then you have the non-closely held shares, like the shares that are just available out there in the stock market. Now here's where you run into an issue. What if there are more short calls on those non-closely held shares than there are those shares available to purchase in the first place? How the f How does that happen? Again, hedge funds. Because again, you don't have to own the stock in order to put out a short contract on it. As a matter of fact, you can borrow the stock from somebody else and put a short contract on the stock that you borrowed that doesn't even belong. That doesn't even belong to you. This is where this is where this starts to look like that movie. I just watched it last night, Uncut Gems with Adam Sandler. Uh, people are buying and selling stuff that they don't own, and it starts to get really dicey. Meaning the same stock, the same security can have multiple short calls placed on it. This doesn't make a lot of sense. It, it doesn't make sense to me, and I, I worked in the industry. It is really weird like you couldn't just borrow a friend's car and put it up as collateral on a loan you you couldn't do this with somebody else's house like imagine borrowing a friend's video game I, I, imagine that you went and borrowed a friend's copy of demon souls and then you took it to gamestop and you thought that the price of demon souls was going to go down in the next 30 days so you traded it in for i don't know like 25 dollars and you had the idea that it was going to go down to $10 in a couple of weeks, at which point you were going to go into GameStop and buy the game for $10 and then pocket the $15 difference. But what if they sold that copy of the game and then sold like all of their copies of the games? What happens then? Well, you're probably really nervous because you owe your friend a copy of the game that you borrowed and all of the games are sold out. So what do you do now? And now you understand what a short squeeze is.
But the problem is, the more of these outstanding stock that you try to buy to cover your position, you're actually driving up the price of that stock because since you're buying it and everyone else is buying it, everyone's thinking, oh my goodness, there's gotta be something to the stock. This is why we should all buy into it. So by doing the exact thing that you were supposed to have done in the first place, which was make sure that your position was covered, you've actually screwed yourself twice over by driving up the price on that stock. And now you understand why Melvin Capital had to get a bailout from their investors and get out of the whole shorting GameStop game altogether. But what's going on with Robinhood? Why did they stop people from buying the stock? Okay, I'm not going to speculate on that, but let me just introduce another scenario. So he's not going to speculate, but he's introducing a scenario. I want you to listen very carefully to this scenario about Robinhood. So let's say that you were the one that lent your friend a copy of Demon's Souls and your friend, the nincompoop that he is, went and sold the option to purchase that game to GameStop. But the manager at GameStop happens to be like, you know, they're, they're cool. They're, they're cool. They, they like each other. They know each other. So what the GameStop manager might do is make sure that they're not going to sell all of the copies of Demon's Souls. They might try to restrict people from buying copies they might keep some copies of the game in the back of the store just to make sure that if that friend of yours that irresponsible friend and other people like your irresponsible friend wanted to just on the slide go and buy up some copies of the game to cover their positions for the game that they owe back to their friends that they borrowed the game from they can actually cover their positions now i wouldn't say that's what robin hood actually did i'm just saying yeah why? Why did that happen? Why did that happen? Indeed. All right. Uh, I think there's one more. There we go. Because if a hedge fund wants to buy up a bunch of stock, they can go ahead and buy up a bunch of stock. But if a regular investor wants to buy the same stock, why is it that the investor is restricted from buying the stock, but they aren't restricted from selling the stock? Who would be out there looking for this stock to purchase that is not a regular investor? I'm not saying. I'm just speculating but you can see the problem that this causes because if the value of the stock is being inflated by people who are looking to cover their positions and people who are looking to buy the stock in the first place because they're trying to get in on the action the inflationary pressure like the amount of growth that puts on the stock which by the way isn't anchored in any kind of reality it's not anchored in how well gamestop as a company is doing or how well their sales are doing or the outlook of the industry or any of that just rampant speculation by people who are looking to either make money or see why causes an ever expanding bubble now here's the hilarious part about that there are people who are deliberately buying into that bubble not because they're actually looking to make money they're just looking to buy stock that they can hold to watch these hedge fund companies blow up imagine having like a staring match where the loser spontaneously combusts if they blink so that's what's going down right now. That's why the regulators are freaking out a little bit. Uh, that's why questions were asked of Joe Biden's press secretary about what they're going to do about the GameStop situation. That's why there are politicians trying to look into market manipulation. That's that's why people are freaking out right now. Okay, so that is why people are freaking out right now. They uh, There were all of these uncovered uh, um, bets and you know a bunch of a bunch of yahoos on reddit decided to go and run up the cost of that or the, the the price of that stock now i saw people 
in this scheme, paying off their student loans with the money that they got from playing in this scheme. So, you know, I, I really, I, you know, this, this isn't overthrowing capitalism by any stretch of the imagination, but it is something interesting. Engage in market manipulation, that's just the cost of doing business. But when regular investors turn the tables on them, well, then everyone loses their minds. <laughs> so, yeah, if you're somebody who's trying to figure out how all this market stuff works and you're looking for an entry point, I, again, would not in any lifetime recommend that this be your particular entry point or this be your particular stock. I'm not, I'm not providing advice. I'm just saying, if you feel like lighting your money on fire, have at it. If you're actually looking to, like, I don't know, build something sustainable over the long term, I, I just don't think this would make a lot of sense. Hopefully that explains it. Um, thanks for watching. I made it through this entire thing without cursing once. Um, Mom, I'm very sorry for the language in the last video. And uh, to whoever sent that video to my mom, I'm a fuck. <laughs> He's just delightful. And it's at Andre Demise. Andre Demise. Um, so I'm going to link that up in the show notes. And uh, I, I just thought that that was just absolutely so good it worked for me i now i feel like i understand a little bit of what's um going on here all right we have janine maloff with a very very special uh bunch of thoughts on um marjorie taylor green and so by way of introduction i'm gonna let you guys hear a little bit of it Let's try this again. All right, folks, we've got Janine Moloff with the Justice Report. Hey, Janine, how are you doing today? I'm good, Brooke, and I'm feeling, well, a bit up. I'm in a little mood here, so I'm just going to get started. This is about Marjorie Taylor Greene. And, you know, she's in the news, and little Margie is on the caller. She's an example of the new fascism and frankly, a very dangerous pawn, but she's a pawn nonetheless. You know, mindless drones like Green are being used to incite and distract, you know, the rest of us, the American public, while this is my theory, the billionaire class continues to rob us of whatever hasn't been nailed down. Now, for the purposes of this report, it's a little tongue in cheek. And just because, well, mocking Marjorie Taylor Green is just too juicy to avoid. I will refer to Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene as our little Margie, borrowing rather ironically from an old TV series. Now, our little Margie just can't resist crapping where she eats 
In fact, our little Margie often confuses an overloaded kitty litter box with a sandbox, and, and this is where we find her daily. She plays in the crap with the rest of the political, can only be called political excrement, especially fellow Trumpers, white supremacists, and neo-Nazis. But there's some others in that loaded diaper of little Margies, namely the mainstream GOP and their corporate funders. So now some musings on our little Margie. What's in her loaded diaper this past week? Well, this past week, as we know, she accosted my congresswoman, Cori Bush, from Missouri's first district in the tunnel underneath the Capitol, and she wasn't wearing a mask. Now, Representative Cori Bush has been given the go-ahead by Speaker Pelosi to move her office, and she claims because, quote, she can't waste time wondering if a white supremacist is conspiring against her, and I don't blame her. Now, our little Margie has targeted Cori Bush because she was involved in Ferguson, and she was a Ferguson leader, and, you know, once again, logic is not important to little Margie. So, you know, she was changing offices. And what happened was there, she's going through the tunnel and Cori Bush told Joy Reid on M- M- MSNBC that the move wasn't based to fear, but it was because she has a job to do uh, because apparently Green approached her and started accosting her verbally without wearing a mask. And what a lot of people don't realize is that Cori, during her campaign, had COVID twice and was hospitalized. But unlike Congress people who received the best medical treatment, including monoclonal antibodies, Cori Bush did not receive that here in St. Louis. She was in a hospital bed and praying that she wasn't basically going to have to have a ventilator or die. That's the reality of it. So anyway, um, you know, Bush was quoted as saying, what I cannot continue to do is look over my shoulder wondering if a white supremacist in Congress by the name of Marjorie Taylor Greene or anyone else, um, because there are others that are they are come conspiring against us. Um, and she also, Cori Bush also said that her, her staffers, quote, should not have to come to work and wonder if that door is going to be open and it's somebody who does not want to do them well, which I would say is very diplomatic on Cori's part. And anyway, uh, basically, this is... Friday afternoon, Green issued a statement, a message to the mob from, from her. She blamed the left-wing Democratic mob and the fake news media for trying to discredit her. And Marjorie said, every attack, quote, every lie, every smear strengthens my base of support at home and across the country because people know the truth and are fed up with the lies, end quote. Man, all I have to say is, little Margie, you give the alleged left-wing Democratic mob too much credit. We couldn't possibly do the same quality job of discrediting you as you've done yourself. But that's more, that's what happened. And, you know, Cori Bush ended this, this instance where she really was put in danger, um, saying that she just wanted Green to put on a mask. And she was quoted saying, quote, Cori Bush said, quote, abide by the rules so that we can do our jobs, end quote. And Cori's right. Little Margie was guilty of reckless endangerment when she and her team refused to mask. And Cori Bush handled Green like any responsible adult or parent would handle a defiant toddler with a loaded diaper. So Green's been, you know, our little Margie's been doing this inflammatory uh, propaganda stuff for some time now. And since some of her postings were catching up with her, she decided to delete quite a bit of it from social media. But 
you know, it, it really, it caught up with her. Okay. Um, turns out that NBC News had issued a report this past August by Brandy Zendranzi, and it revealed that Green was not only a QAnon supporter, but acted as an alleged correspondent for a conspiracy website known as, quote, American Truth Seekers. And this was revealed by archived web pages that were discovered by NBC News, found on the archives, the Internet Archives Wayback Machine. So in post, published in 2017, Green wrote pieces supporting QAnon, suggesting that Hillary Clinton murdered her political enemies, and also theorized that mass shootings were orchestrated specifically to dismantle Second Amendment rights. Green deleted the post from her pre-candidate social media, but then Green outed herself in a 2017 interview with a conservative activist on Facebook, and Green's quote is saying, quote, American truth seekers, so follow that page, they publish my articles, and you'll see me there, end quote. So, again, Marjorie Taylor Greene's been pulling this crap for some time now. Um, you know, she plays along with the extremists, the white supremacists, the neo-Nazis, because she's comfortable with their, um, you know, she reported the other day in a series of tweets that she was, quote, so grateful for Trump's support. And more importantly, the people of this country are absolutely 100 percent loyal to him because he is 100 percent loyal to the people in America first, end quote. So there's our little Margie again playing in her diaper along with little Donnie Trump as they confuse political excrement for perfume. So we go on. And again, you know, she calls out the poison, quote, poisonous rod of socialist policies, end quote. You know, can Little Margie even spell socialism? That's my question. But she goes on and she even, you know, tries to claim this is where Jews in space comes in. And the Sacramento Bee reported on January 28th, 2021, that Green made these insane accusations regarding the origins of the California wildfires. And you know, basically, she tried to claim that um, these were caused by basically laser beams that were shot from space and controlled by Jewish bankers. Um, and even in a post, she claims investor Richard C. Bloom, who's the husband of Senator Dianne Feinstein, who is Jewish, along with the banking firm Rothschild Inc., um, is the basically is a subject of, quote, a longstanding anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, uh, again, Jews in space. Uh, and, you know, you can go online and see the little video, uh, a takeout of Mel Brooks, and it just goes, Jews in space. You know, the insanity is so crazy. It, it speaks for itself. All right. So, all right. After she accosted Cori Bush, Congresswoman Cori Bush, and and really, when these anti-maskers in Congress refuse to mask, you don't have to worry about unseating them. If I were Cory Bush and some of the others, I would press criminal. I would insist on criminal charges of reckless endangerment being pressed against them. It's that simple. But that's my own personal opinion. So why am I bringing all this up? Getting to the real issue. And these are the power brokers, the people that put people like our little Marjorie, Margie, little Margie, Marjorie Taylor Greene into power, along with Josh Hawley, along with Ted Cruz, along with Andy Biggs and several others, Louis Gohmert. And this is from this is a report exposed by CMD. It's from the Center for Media and Democracy. 
and the donors. It talks to extremists like Green. This is the power behind these white supremacists and neo-Nazis. When we're talking about white supremacy, it is Nazism. It's the same thing. And these power brokers are just as foul as anything coming from, again, little Margie's loaded diaper. Seriously, no jokes here. The big money, the neo-Nazi bosses, corporate bosses, would foment an insurrection and, and recreate a neo-Nazi regime is talked about here. So the Center for Media and Democracy did featured investigations. And one is, the first one is Coke Industries is the top cor corporate donor to reps who would try to overturn democracy. This was written by Alex Koch, uh, December 29, 2020. <clears throat> and he talks about how there are these dozens of corporate PACs that have bankrolled the campaigns of these GOP extremists, okay? And CMD did a review of campaign finance data. And what they found was Coke Industries is the top corporate PAC donor. And the National Association of Realtors is the top trade association PAC contributor. Um, and to these right-wing politicians, I'm gonna call them out Nazis, no jokes here. Um, you know, it doesn't matter that Trump's legal team lost more than 50 frivolous lawsuits you know, alleging voter fraud that just didn't exist and, and receiving really embarrassing reprimands from judges, even Trump judges, they keep doing it. So now we have to look at this. So on De December 21st, according to Koch, there were um, members of the House Freedom Caucus that met with Trump to plan one final attempted coup, which is what we saw on the 6th. And members of the House Freedom Caucus, Andy Biggs, Mo Brooks, Matt Gates, Louis Gomer, Jody Heiss, Jim Jordan, and Scott Perry were all supposedly at the meeting, and they were going to challenge electoral college results. Um, on December 27th, Gomer went further. He sued Vice President Pence, um, demanded a federal court give Pence exclusive authority to decide which electoral college votes would be counted. Now, it was a, uh, according to Election Law Blog. Isla Margie was at the meeting, okay? And she, again, she's an adherent of Q, the QAnon movement, which, again, the insanity of QAnon is beyond the pale, all right? You have to understand what little Margie's really all about and these other people as well. QAnon claims that basically people of color basically should be returned back, I guess, to slavery, and that the Jews are responsible for everything, including murdering babies and putting their blood in their matzah. Um, this is basically, QAnon is just a retread of the vile protocols of the elders of Zion that was pushed in Russia in the early 1900s. Um, going back to this, though, this meeting, Madison Cawthorn, one North Carolina's 11th congressional district made some really strange media posts about Adolf Hitler, um, spoke to Turning Point USA that he was going to join Trump loyalists on January 6th. A bunch of corporate PACs boosted the campaigns of these alt-right representatives. Um, Coke Industries tops the list. All right. They're a fossil fuel conglomerate and they're led by mega donor Charles Koch. Um, Charles Koch ironically recently published a new book because he's trying to rebrand himself as a uniter and that he has regrets about fueling po political partisanship and, and all of this, but 
you know, once again, once a snake, always a snake, in my opinion. So anyway, Code Pack donated the maximum allowed amount, 5000 to the QAnon affiliated Green. And you've heard in the media where the company asked for a refund, refund uh, for the donation. That's according to Open Secrets. Well, that's the company. These, the money's come from, but it's not Charles Koch. So he could talk out of both sides of his mouth. Um, besides funding campaigns directly, Koch Industries is the biggest donor to Americans for Prosperity Action. That's a super PAC um, that helps fund all these people. Uh, in the 2020 election cycle, Koch Industries basically uh, produced $16 million to the super PAC. And basically the PAC of the trade group, the National Association of Realtors in 2020, that represents real estate brokers and property managers, gave the highest total to the, P, that were the people in the coup that were most enthusiastic, coup enthusiasts, like such um, 44,000 of the campaigns of Biggs, Brooks, Bud, Gomer, Jordan, Heiss, and Perry. There are PACs from the defense and telecom industries that have also given money to these extremists in one form or another. AT&T, Boeing, Comcast, Cox Enterprises, Northrop Grunman and Raytheon, okay? Uh, PACs from the tech industry that sent money in one way or another. Amazon, Google, Intel, PACs from gas and electric utilities, Alabama Power, First Energy, Pinnacle West Capital, Southern Company, and PACs from the finance and insurance sector, Aflac, Blue Cross Blue Shield, Capital One, Goldman Sachs, and Truist Financial. So these are all groups that have given money to PACs in one form or another that have basically supported these alt-right neo-Nazi legislators. And that's by Exposed Center for Media and Democracy. And Alex, Co Alex Koch is an investigative reporter. Um, he's a contributor to CMD. He's also a campaign finance expert. He helped launch Money in Politics, the Money in Politics website, Sludge. His work's been published by many media outlets, including the International Business Times, American Prospect, The Nation, and Vice.com. Now, here's the big report. Also on Exposed by Center for Media and Democracy, the real money behind the politicians who voted to overturn the election. Again, Alex Koch, published on January 28th, just a few days ago. So, the days following the Capitol insurrection by white supremacists, QAnon adherents, and other Donald Trump supporters, CMD reported on corporate PACs behind campaign donations that helped put these people in office. Now, it is true that, according to CNN, many of these companies did pledge that they were going to stop donations to the election deniers or even stop campaign donations altogether to the, those particular people. But think for a minute. That doesn't prove that these corporations have any integrity, if anything. It shows their duplicity. They gave money to nutters like our little Margie, and now they want their money back. So after she does their dirty work, they have their corporate, what I'll call Pontius Pilate moment, where they say, no, we didn't, we didn't mean that. Does anyone truly believe that this big money doesn't have the most expensive PR hacks doing deep dive research on loonies like little Margie? Of course they do. If I can find it in an hour online, there is no excuse. 
So, but wealthy conservatives and corporations spend even more money. They, they basically send it through independent groups. Those independent groups pay for ads and other election costs to basically, and in this instance, push these 106 members of Congress to overturn the election. And these Republican politicians go on to use the big lie about alleged voter fraud. And that's their excuse to overturn a valid Democratic election. There were major companies and executives of Wall Street firms, fossil fuel businesses, casino empires, and shipping giants that all gave money to these super PACs and other outside spending groups, hundreds of millions of dollars. Among the top donors were Miriam Adelson and her recently deceased husband, Sheldon Adelson. That's casino money. Hedge fund CEO, Ken Griffin. Mellon Steel Fortune heir, Timothy Mellon. Blackstone CEO Stephen Schwartzman and Euling owner Richard Euling. And some of these top donors, they run companies. And yes, they've halted their campaign donations to these election objectors, but they haven't promised they would stop giving money. So how it's done, the money game that funds these Nazis. When these people donate to a politician's campaign or traditional PAC, there's strict limits. But here's the kicker. Contributions to what are called super PACs or 501Cs, which are what are called social welfare, nonprofits, trade associations, and so on. There's no restrictions on how much money they can give. So these conservative oligarchs and their companies, they flood elections with a lot of money. And those people help elect senators like Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, who basically are still pushing to invalidate the election. They also helped extremist freshmen like Lauren Boebert, Madison Cawthorn, and yes, Q and Han inherit Marjorie Taylor Greene, our little Margie. CMD and the Center for Responsive Politics identified 40 political super PACs, trade associations, and other committees. Brooke, I'm going to stop here. How am I doing on time? You're doing fine. Okay. Was about 10 more minutes, roughly? Yes. Okay. Okay. I'll, I'll get back to it now. So... CMD used Federal Election Commission FEC data. Some of it they compiled themselves, and CMD identified 40 political super PACs, trade associations, and other committees that spent over 100000 to help elect at least one of the 147 Republicans in the recent elections, and top donors to the spending groups. So here's the big 40 that helped elect these white supremacist neo-Nazis. Okay? The Congressional Leadership Fund. They spent $67.9 million in the 2020 election. The Senate Leadership Fund spent $40.3 million over 2018 and 2020. The National Republican Congressional Committee spent $39.1 million in 2020. The New Republican PAC spent $29.5 million in 2018, backing Rick Scott of Florida. And the Club for Growth Action spent $19.4 million, but basically in 2020. Prominent examples of their work. Um, basically, Club for Growth PAC, they're subject to $5,000 individual donation limits. They spent $315,000 to boost campaigns of more than 20 election deniers in 2018 and 2020. Affiliated super PACs like Club for Growth Action and CFGA Missouri spend a combined $22.7 million, and that was the fifth highest outside spending group. So little Josh Hawley has some friends with deep pockets. No wonder he felt emboldened to fist pump his approval of Nazi insurrectionists. 
It also donated to additional spending groups, the Congressional Leadership Fund, Protect Freedom PAC, and Texas Art. And our little Josh Hawley here in my home state of Missouri benefited from this big money the most. Turns out that the elite like little Joshy a lot. They like him to the tune of $41.2 million worth. And, he, you know, and Hawley tries to make it look like he is a right-wing populist. Not at all. Okay. So after Hawley, Scott, Rick Scott of Florida had the second highest total. He received some $35.1 million. Kansas Senator Roger Marshall, $29.8 million. New Mexican Rep Yvette Harrell, $12.3 million. And California Rep Mike Garcia, $11.5 million. Top donors. CMD identified quite a few, but here are the top donors to the election deniers. Top 10. Miriam and Sheldon Adelson, $191.4 million. And that's a Vegas gambling fortune. Ken Griffin. $59.8 million. He's a CEO of Citadel Hedge Fund. Timothy Mellon, $50 million, majority owner of Pan Am Systems and Mellon Steel Air. Stephen and Christine Schwarzman, $46 million, CEO of Blackstone, which is a private equity firm and the world's biggest landlord. Liz and Richard Uline here in Missouri, $43.4 million. They own and operate the Uline Shipping Supply Company. They're also a major fund of Tea Party, funder of Tea Party Patriots and donor to, far, to the far-right media outlet, The Federalist. Came from Open Secrets. Number six, Jeff Yass, $33.3 million, managing director of investment firm Susquehanna International Group on the board of Cato Institute, gave money to the Protect Freedom Pact, which helped seat Bobert and Cawthorn. Raya's family, $21.5 million, food and beverage distribution business in Florida. Ricketts family, $18.1 million, donated over $18 million to Super PACs. Joe Ricketts is founder of TD Ameritrade, and son Pete uh, is Nebraska governor. That's what it said anyway. Son Todd took over as finance chair for the Republican National Committee. TD Ameritrade was acquired in 2020 by fellow right-winger Charles Schwab. Number nine, Charles and Helen Schwab, $17.2 million. Schwab Bank shut down its PAC after bad press regarding the insurrection, but founder Charles Schwab remained silent about future plans. And 10, Bernard and Billy Marcus, 14.7 million, Home Depot co-founder. It also includes hedge fund, man, Paul, hedge fund manager Paul Singer, chicken farming tycoon Ronald Cameron. Additional mega donors include Ronald Lauder, chair of SD Lauder, the family of Trump's education secretary, Betsy DeVos, members of the Walton family, Walmart Fortune, Fox Corporation's Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch, and Federal Society board member C. Boyd and Grade. The big daddy of neo-Nazi funding, Koch. They're the key coup attempt funder. Um, through Americans for Prosperity Action, um, they spent over $9.5 million backing electoral objectors. They spent $4 million to help Holly defeat Claire McCaskill. And it goes on, okay? This is corporate complicity at its worst. Um, number of other corporations, including several fossil fuel companies, gave quite a bit of money to spending groups to elect these neo-Nazis. Watchdog Group Public Citizen reported fossil fuel company PACs and execs gave $8.8 million to election deniers' campaigns and GOP party committees. <clears throat> so while some companies limited or cut off political donations, to these election deniers and neo-Nazis, many have not. Partial lists include Chevron, Hillwood Development Company, RAI Services Company, Reynolds American, Pilot Corporation, TRT Holdings, 
which owns the Omni Hotels chain, Valero, Marathon Petroleum, ConocoPhillips, Wheatland Tube, Boeing's GL Group, and Murray Energy. And then we've got dark money. It goes on and on and on. There's just too much to get through it all. There's also some Democratic donors, including Michael Bloomberg. He gave 500000 to the With Honor Fund, which is a super PAC. So the conclusion. Look, nut jobs like Marjorie Taylor Greene and the Donald are the grand distraction. Their job is to incite hate, endorse Nazism, generate general chaos, while the real power, in other words, the money class, steals everything, like I said before, that hasn't been nailed down. After the grand destruct, I'm sorry, after the grand distraction gets the job done. If they happen to implode from a toxic brew of late lunacy, rage, and general stupidity, like little Margie, the money class just steps away. They claim they didn't know about the insiders they sponsored. They were and they figure they have enough plausible deniability. Now keep in mind, these corporate funders, they they don't give money to anything without doing a deep dive research into everything about these people. So that's pure nonsense. It's not only a lie, it's an incredibly stupid lie. Now, while all this is going on, corporate law firms of the money class pre-write templates of alleged laws which strip the public of any genuine rights. We're talking Mackinac Center, ALEC, the State Policy Network. Again, all three Coke-funded. While the growing rage of the general public, which is basically white Christians, is aimed at minorities, racial minorities, religious minorities, LGBTQ community. This is another big lie and a grand distraction. This isn't hyperbole. What a lot of people don't understand is the original Nazis of the Third Reich under Hitler were bankrolled and assisted by big banks and big corporate money, including the Ford Motor Company. This was documented in a book by Daniel Goldhagen titled Hitler's Willing Executioners, based on Goldhagen's doctoral dissertation. While American soldiers were fighting World War II, the Ford Motor Company, through a German-named corporation, provided vital uh, auto parts to the Nazi war machine. That, that, that level of treason. This is only a small example of the partnership between Nazism and big corporate money. There would be no Marjorie, Marjorie Taylor Greens in high office without bankrolls and other types of support from the billionaire corporate class. So while we laugh at little Margie's, you know, overloaded, smelly diapers, we need to hold these corporations and billionaires accountable. And that starts with ending the doctrine that money is speech, which the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia cursed us with. Every political campaign should be publicly funded with no allowance for any other money contributions. Furthermore, the fairness doctrine must be reinstated. And this was a doctrine that allowed opposing viewpoints airtime on television news. It was, it was destroyed by the Reagan administration. Additionally, the fairness doctrine must apply to all media, including cable news, and that means Fox, the first, and Newsmax. No exceptions. This report began with the incident where Marjorie Taylor Greene recklessly endangered Representative Cori Bush, her team, and anyone in the vicinity by refusing a mask as they shrieked their hate. This incident really should be viewed as symbolic. While big money funds Nazis like little Margie, that same big money has pushed for a premature reopening of the nation, knowing full well the death toll from COVID will explode. The billionaire class doesn't care. They know they can manipulate useful idiots like little Margie while avoiding any consequences since they engineered enough plausible deniability. 
It is the big money that fuels this insurgent Nazism. Now, I admit, mocking Marjorie Taylor Greene is just too juicy to to avoid. But her hatred and special brand of corporate-sponsored Nazism is no joke. And that's my report. And that was the always amazing Janine Moloff with the Justice Report. Don't miss her uh, on Thursday nights at 8 o'clock. She does the Environmental Justice Report every week. And, uh, hey, man, that is that is it for us this week. And uh, I think I'm going to leave you guys with, let's see. I'm Ireland Randall and AFK I'm alive in earthquake And the world's not bouncing It's a beat dance in the sixth dimension Yeah.